This is a Scream Queen production. Serial City, USA. Sounds like a good time, right? This urban metropolis, located where the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo Rivers converge, has a strange and fascinating history. Named after a bloody battle between natives and 19th century land surveyors, Battle Creek was the birthplace of Seventh-day Adventists and a vital part of the Underground Railroad. It was also home to the Kelloggs, a family of eccentric inventors and entrepreneurs who would go on to rule the world of breakfast foods. But before their worldwide fame came the sanitarium, and the questionable deaths, and the fires. And after their downfall came the complicated legacy that would continue to result in tragedy for decades to come. Cereal is Battle Creek's lifeblood, but it's also been the root cause of bloodshed many times over. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead Podcast. In this eight-part series, I will share with you stories of murder and mayhem from Serial City. Some so outlandish, you'll find yourself choking on your corn pops. Welcome to the Serial Killer Chronicles, a So Dead miniseries. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Serial Killer Chronicles. This is a serialized podcast, which means you should listen to the episodes in order. So if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, please go do that now. I'll be here when you get back. Okay, let's snap, crackle, pop. Part 6, The Hitman. For decades, the Kellogg Company's production facility in Battle Creek offered public tours, during which visitors could watch the magical process of how cereal comes to life and then sample freshly made cereal at the end of their tour. Sounds like a dream. Sadly, though, those tours stopped abruptly in 1986. The company claimed it was due to spies from other cereal companies using the tours to steal trade secrets. But it might have had a bit more to do with the three Kellogg employees that had just been arrested for murder, which led to an investigation of criminal activity at the plant. Sharon Goddard was a forklift operator who worked the night shift at Kellogg's production facility. Born in 1954 to Leroy and Arlene Despins, she graduated from Gull Lake High School and gave birth to her first child, a daughter, in 1978. In 1981, she met and fell in love with Ricky Goddard of Dowling, the bass guitarist in a popular local band, Joshua. Dowling is a village of less than 375 residents, about 15 miles north of Battle Creek, so really just a suburb. Ricky Goddard was born on November 12, 1953, to John and Beverly Goddard in Battle Creek. He graduated from Lakeview High School in 1971, where he played baseball and was in band. He went on to attend Kellogg Community College, where he earned an associate's degree in data processing, before taking a job with Battle Creek Glassworks, where he worked for 14 years. He and Sharon got married on June 15, 1984, and he adopted Sharon's daughter the following year. 1985 was a big year for the Goddards, who lived in a small mobile home on Gird Road in Dowling. Aside from adopting Sharon's daughter, officially making the three of them a family, Ricky opened his own business, Wholesale Glass Inc. in Pawpaw. They started the process of building a house on their property, and Sharon got pregnant for the second time. With so many exciting things on the horizon as they rang in the new year, 1986 was supposed to be full of milestones for the Goddard family. And it was, just not in the way they expected. In the early morning hours of Saturday, January 25, 1986, 
32-year-old Sharon arrived home from her shift at Kellogg's to a strange scene. There were erratic, zigzagging tire tracks in her snow-filled driveway. The storm door was swinging in the wind. All the lights were on, which was very unlike the budget-conscious Ricky. The dog was at the back door, whining to get outside. The Goddard's daughter, now eight years old, had spent the night with her maternal grandparents, a long-standing Friday night tradition, so she wasn't home. But Ricky should have been. The house was eerily quiet. Sharon called out for Ricky, but she got no answer, and that's when she saw him. Face down, eyes wide open, with a gaping hole in the back of his head caused by a shotgun blast. There was no question that he was dead. Blood, brain matter, and hair were on the table, walls, and ceiling. Sharon ran to the bedroom and called 911, then placed calls to a few family members before going outside to wait for authorities. First on the scene was Barry County Sheriff's Detective Ken DeMott. Blood evidence seemed to suggest that Ricky's body had been moved after he was killed, so suicide was ruled out quickly. Detective DeMott noted that there was no sign of forced entry at the home, so it didn't look to him like a robbery gone wrong. But he asked Sharon if she'd noticed anything missing. She told him she hadn't been paying attention, which was understandable, considering that she'd just seen her husband's brains on the kitchen table. She asked the detective to look for Ricky's wallet, a jewelry box, a mink coat, her checkbook, and a diamond ring. The wallet and jewelry box were missing, along with Ricky's wedding ring and the gold chain that he wore religiously, but the other items were still there, along with other valuables, including a payroll check, a bank bag full of cash, a vase full of cash in plain sight, and a newer TV and VCR. It became clear to investigators pretty quickly that this wasn't a robbery, but a murder made to look like a robbery. According to Detective DeMott, it was more common for homes out in the country like the Goddard home to be burglarized during the day when everyone was at work, not in the middle of the night when most people were at home sleeping. And it wasn't very likely that a burglar would be carrying around a shotgun. They tended to be a bit more stealthy than that. But if it wasn't a suicide, and it wasn't a burglary, then what was it? Police really had no leads. A few weeks after the murder, detectives received a tip through the Silent Observer Program, which allowed citizens to submit anonymous tips about unsolved crimes. A woman by the name of Carol Strobel reported that her former boyfriend had been talking for months about how he'd been hired to kill a man for his boss. She didn't take him seriously, but when she saw an article about the murder of Ricky Goddard in the local newspaper, she knew who was responsible. On February 18, 1986, Carol's ex-boyfriend, Norman Woodmancy, age 47, of Dowling, was arrested for first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, along with his boss at the Kellogg Company, 29-year-old Richard Eckstein of Battle Creek, and Eckstein's girlfriend of the past year and a half, Sharon Goddard, Ricky's wife. Richard and Sharon met working the night shift at Kellogg's, her a forklift operator on the production floor, him the supervisor of the machine shop. They began dating in the summer of 1984, right about the time that Sharon and Ricky got married. By the following summer, allegedly, Sharon and Richard began talking to Norman Woodmancy about killing Ricky. Norman Woodmancy was a man with a past. In 1985, when the murder-for-hire plot was first hatched, he was on parole for selling cocaine to an undercover police officer in the Kellogg parking lot. He was also hiding a dark secret that would come out much later. According to Norman, Richard and Sharon offered him $3,000 to kill Sharon's husband. 
Her reasons for wanting Ricky dead were many. He was abusive, he was secretly gay, and there was a hefty insurance policy to be collected upon his death. Only one of those things was actually true. But Norman had no way to know that, nor did he really care. Norman once drove his girlfriend Carol Strobel, the one that would eventually help police break the case, past the Goddard home and told her, The man I'm going to kill lives there. He was very detailed about the plan. He was going to go to the house in the middle of the night, ask to use the telephone, and then once inside he was going to shoot Ricky and take his $600 gold chain and wedding ring to make it look like a robbery. In September 1985, Norman told Carol that the plan was on hold because Sharon wanted to up Ricky's life insurance policy before he died. Carol didn't take Norman seriously, nor did the several other people he bragged to about the murder-for-hire plot that he was involved in. Norman was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict that was always telling wild tales. He told anyone who would listen about how he'd killed a man in the summer of 84 and dumped his body in a creek. Nobody believed that one either. During the time the Goddard hit was on hold, Carol and Norman broke up. She moved out of his house, checked herself into rehab, and spent the next few months there. It was only after she was released in January 1986 and saw the headlines in the local newspapers that she realized just how serious Norman really was. On Thanksgiving Day, 1985, the talk around the Goddard's dinner table, where Ricky's parents and siblings had joined him and his new little family, was a grim one. Sharon was pressing Ricky to up his insurance policy from $50,000 to $100,000. It was smart, she argued, what with the new baby coming and them taking on a mortgage to build their dream home. Ricky insisted they couldn't afford it and that it was unnecessary. He already had a $10,000 policy through his company, a $33,000 policy through Sharon's job, and the $50,000 supplemental policy that he already carried but Sharon wanted more. Just in case. So she asked Ricky's cousin, an insurance agent, to draw up a new policy. Ricky's cousin drove the papers over to the Goddard home on December 4, 1985, and assisted Sharon in convincing Ricky to sign them. Sharon promised to pay for the new policy, which she did. The first payment was made the week before Ricky was killed. On March 11, 1986, Nearly a month after Sharon and her accomplices were arrested, Circuit Court Judge Gary Holman ruled that while there was enough evidence to send Norman Woodmancy to trial, there was not enough evidence to uphold the charges against Sharon and Richard. The strongest evidence prosecutors had was the testimony of Carol Strobel, who said that Norman told her that Richard told him that Sharon wanted Ricky dead, and that was just one too many degrees of the telephone game for a court of law. So Norman went on trial, and Sharon and Richard went free, although the prosecutor's office immediately filed an appeal on the grounds that the judge had abused his discretion in dropping the charges against the lethal lovebirds. The trial of Norman Woodmancy began in June 1986. Aside from the testimony of his ex-girlfriend and two former roommates who all claimed Norman told them about the murder-for-hire plot, multiple people claimed to have seen Norman, Richard, and Sharon together, even though Norman testified that he didn't really like his boss and he only knew Sharon in the context of her being a pretty lady that worked in his building who he would say hello to in passing. The tire tracks found at the Goddard home matched up with the factory-issue tires on Norman's 1981 sedan, tires that he had replaced the week after the murder. He told the auto repair technician that he needed them changed to shake the police. 
And then he laughed about it, so it was surely a joke, right? There was also the small issue of that other murder that Norman talked about so freely. Turns out he had killed a man and dumped his body in a creek during the summer of 1984. According to Norman, he was driving home from Indiana on July 19, 1984, when he spotted a hitchhiker on I-69 near the Gas City exit, just north of Indianapolis. The man was 42-year-old drifter and carnival worker Frederick Kuna, who also went by the name Frederick Kimberly, of Pennsylvania. Frederick was headed to Benton Harbor, Michigan to look for work. It was nearly a three-hour drive from Gas City to Dowling, where Norman lived, and then another hour and a half from Dowling to Benton Harbor. So Frederick was invited to stay the night at Norman's and sleep off the bender he'd been on for days, then finish his trek the following day. By the time the men reached Norman's place, they were both very intoxicated. They'd been drinking the whole way. So Norman went inside and got his twenty-five caliber handgun. Not because he was leery of Frederick or intended on shooting him, he testified, but because he always carried a gun on him in his own home, as one does. Some time passed, and Frederick was still outside, so Norman went to check on him. As Norman approached his truck, Frederick pulled a knife and demanded Norman's keys and cash. Allegedly, he slashed at Norman, slicing his forearm, so Norman fired his gun in self-defense. Frederick was killed instantly when a bullet entered his skull just behind the right ear, severing his brainstem. Norman said he panicked, stuffed the body in his trunk, drove a few miles down M66, and tossed the body into the creek. He told investigators, I threw the body over the bridge and went home. I felt bad about it. Well, I'm glad you felt bad about it, Norman. Investigators didn't buy the self-defense story, though, on account of Frederick Kuna being shot in the back of the head and Norman bragging about the murder after the fact. Norman Woodmancy's defense in his trial for the contract killing of Ricky Goddard was this. He was a drunk and a drug addict. He liked to tell stories and brag about being a hitman, but there was no truth to any of it. He also had an alibi. His friend and cocaine supplier, 34-year-old George Zugel of Battle Creek, claimed that Norman was with him on the night of January 24th into the morning of January 25th. Investigators had placed Ricky Goddard's time of death right around 2 a.m. on the 25th. According to Zugel, the two men spent the night drinking and partying, and Norman only left the house twice, for very brief periods of time. Once to run to the party store to buy more beer, and once to go to a payphone and place a phone call to a man named Robert Hyslop about rent money. For his testimony, George Zugel would later be charged with conspiracy to commit perjury. Jury deliberations in the Woodmancy trial took an especially long time, because one of the jurors broke her leg in the crush of media and spectators on the courthouse steps the day the trial concluded. She was hospitalized for five days, during which time the deliberations were on hold. But on June 27, 1986, right around the time that Sharon Goddard gave birth to her second child, who would never meet his father, Norman Woodmancy was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Less than five months later, on November 12th, Norman was found guilty for the murder of Frederick Kuna and given another life sentence. He exhausted his appeals by 1990 and died in prison on January 28, 2011, at the age of 67, almost 25 years to the day after the murder of Ricky Goddard. But the story was far from over. 
Because if Norman Woodmansey was a hired assassin, and a jury determined that he was, then who hired him? The answer appeared pretty obvious, but the American justice system didn't seem to agree. A break in the case was coming, though, albeit from a very unexpected source. George Zuko, Norman's alibi and drug dealer, was not a good liar, as it turns out, or a good criminal. So when a truck driver from South Haven, Michigan, happened upon the sawed-off shotgun that had been used to kill Ricky Goddard over a year and a half after the murder, it was very quickly traced back to Zugel, who had arranged for Norman to borrow the gun from a friend, 42-year-old Robert Hyslop of Marshall, the man that Norman had called on the night of January 24th, about rent money, supposedly. Now, Norman was with George Zugel at his apartment in Battle Creek on the night of January 24th, but when they went to a payphone to call Robert Hyslop, it wasn't about rent money. It was to arrange for the men to pick up Hyslop's untraceable, sawed-off shotgun, which was later traced very quickly and easily. Norman told Hyslop he needed the gun to collect money owed to him for cocaine. When Hyslop picked the gun back up from Zugel a couple days later, he asked why it had been fired. And Zugel told him, get rid of it, you don't want it. When Hyslop asked him why, Zugel said, you don't want to know. So the men agreed that if things went south, and they did, quickly, and they were asked about that phone call from Norman to Hyslop the night of the murder, they would say that it was about rent money. Robert Hyslop took the gun and threw it in the Kalamazoo River. When he saw the news about the murder of Ricky Goddard a few days later, he knew what his gun had been used for, so he confronted George Zugel about it, who confessed to him that he'd been promised $2,000 for helping to procure the murder weapon which he then borrowed for free. In October 1987, Robert Hyslop pled guilty to charges of perjury and took a plea deal, agreeing to cooperate with authorities in their case against George Zugel. That same month, Zugel was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and conspiracy to commit perjury. His trial for the perjury charge began on March 14, 1988, and he was found guilty real quick. His trial for the murder charge was scheduled to begin in April, but in a surprise move, Zugel took a plea deal. He pled guilty to aiding and abetting first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. George Zugel died on May 30, 2011, just a few months after the death of his old friend Norman Woodmansey. Unlike Norman, however, George died a free man. He was only 60 years old. In exchange for the plea deal that allowed him to find love, build a life, watch his grandchildren grow, George Zugel gave investigators what they wanted more than anything, Sharon Goddard and Richard Eckstein. In a surprise move that no one saw coming, not even the families of the victims or the suspects, Sharon and Richard were rearrested on April 9, 1988, over two years after the murder of Ricky Goddard. They were charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The trial, which was moved to Eaton County due to the level of publicity that the case attracted in the Battle Creek area, began on July 13, 1988, and the setup was a bit strange. It was one trial with two separate juries deciding Sharon and Richard's fates independent of one another. The prosecution's case was simple. Sharon and Richard hired Norman Woodmansey to kill Ricky Goddard so that they could collect nearly $150,000 in insurance money and start a life together. Rumor had it, the baby Sharon was pregnant with at the time of Ricky's murder wasn't her husband's at all. It was Richard Eckstein's. 
The pair denied this, Richard going so far as to say he'd had a vasectomy at the age of 24, but multiple witnesses testified that Sharon had confided in them that Richard was the father. One of those witnesses was a 15-year-old girl who babysat for the Goddards and even lived with them for a time. Sharon was hoping to take her in as a foster child, but Ricky wasn't having it, and this was just one of the many points of contention in their marriage in the months leading up to Ricky's murder. Sharon and Richard claimed to have broken up months before the murder, allegedly because Sharon was upset that Richard was seeing other women at the factory, but witnesses testified that they were together until at least early January, so at best, they broke up a few weeks before the murder. When Sharon testified that she ended her relationship with Richard in November of 1985 to put her family back together, the prosecutor pointed out that not even a month later, Sharon began an affair with another of her co-workers at the Kellogg factory, Dan Leatherman. He asked, was the affair with Mr. Leatherman a way to put your family back together? Man, what was in those cornflakes? And about that insurance policy. Even with the cloud of suspicion hanging over her head, Sharon tried to cash it in, and when the insurance company denied her claim, she fought it. The insurance company refused to pay the claim so long as Sharon's culpability in Ricky's murder was still in question. Turns out, if you kill someone for their insurance money, you are no longer entitled to said insurance money, which is just kind of a good life tip to have. Also, the insurance company stated that the newly purchased policy was not valid and that they would only honor the original $50,000 policy. According to the company, if the policy was taken out in contemplation of murder, then it was illegal from its conception. In June of 1986, Sharon signed away her claim to the insurance benefits, leaving it all to her children when they came of age. I would imagine that she did so on the instruction of her defense attorney, who probably knew she was guilty and that her money grab only made her look guiltier. And then there were the little things, things that didn't seem like a big deal on their own, but altogether were hard to discount, like the neighbor who testified that Sharon had told her she might have come into the marriage without much, but would be damned if she'd leave it that way, and expressed concern over how Ricky, who didn't touch drugs, would freak out if he found out she was doing cocaine. There was the male friend of Sharon's who testified that when he ran into Sharon around Christmas, she told him he should come over for a visit after February 1st because the divorce should be done by then. Even though neither she nor Ricky had actually filed for divorce, a process that takes several months in Michigan. One of Sharon's co-workers testified that on the night of the murder, right around 2 a.m., the time police believe Ricky was killed, Sharon made a phone call and was visibly upset and crying. All of this, along with the testimony of George Zugel and the fact that one of Richard's employees had been convicted of the murder, made for a pretty strong case by the prosecution— One they were confident was a slam dunk. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, affairs, hitmen, insurance money. The trial of Sharon Goddard and Richard Eckstein came to a conclusion on July 29, 1988. Their separate juries reached separate verdicts within a matter of hours. They were both found not guilty. Don't ask me to explain it because I can't. They were released from custody immediately and were back home with their families before midnight that night. If that's not enough injustice for you, just wait until next week. 
In the next episode, we'll discuss a series of murders in Battle Creek that were either perpetrated by a serial killer or a man who sold cereal. My source for today's episode was newspapers.com. There was no one great resource for this one, no book or lengthy article to read. I came upon it by chance and I had to piece it together from dozens of old articles, most of them from the Lansing State Journal and the Battle Creek Inquirer. We're talking obituaries, birth announcements, marriage announcements, court records. Newspapers.com is a great source for all of that. And they don't pay me to say that. It's really true. The Serial Killer Chronicles is an eight-part miniseries with new episodes released every Thursday. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider giving So Dead, my podcast about the weird goings-on in Michigan, a listen. You can find both The Serial Killer Chronicles and So Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find The Serial Killer Chronicles on Facebook and So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also reach me by email at SoDeadPodcast.com. I'm Jen Carpenter. Thank you again for joining me today, and I'll see you soon. And remember, you're a snack, Applejack. <laughs>